Okay, so here we go. See what other technical disasters we can have today. So this Torah portion, and I like these Torah portions that I can pronounce the word, Ikev, or Akev. And it's Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 11, 25, Isaiah 49, 14 through 51, 3, and Matthew 16, 13 through 20, which is a large chunk of scripture. And there is about four hours worth of stuff in it. So obviously we're not going to do much of it. But to me it's uh, among the most important sections of scripture that there is for us because if you remember what Paul said if we are to look to the Exodus generation as examples for us and not do what they did and do what they didn't do and learn from them then this is a hugely important section so this word it's it's uh, iron cough bet I think we'll get to this. Oh yeah, there it is. Ein Kapet, that's right. <clears throat> and it's uh, it means reward or result. It also means heal, it means end. It's translated as if and because and all kinds of things. But it's interesting that it's the word for heal. And we get Yaakov, Jacob, and almost everybody you listen to will tell you it means heel catcher. And of course we've discussed it in doesn't mean anything like heel catcher. It means restrainer. But this word, ikev, is the, is the Torah portion today. And it's the word from which we get Yaakov. You just put a yud in front of this word and you get Yaakov or Jacob. And so it, it, it can mean heel. The yud is the closed hand. It's a sign of worship. It's the letter of God. It's the teeniest letter in the Hebrew scripture. It's anytime you see the U, you can sort of attach God's fingerprint to it. So you put a U in front of this word and you don't get heel catcher. It is part of the word, but that's not anything like the meaning. So restrainer, and, and it was because he restrained his brother from getting the birthright and all that sort of thing. So this Torah section begins in Deuteronomy 7.12 and it begins like this. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if ye hearken unto these judgments, and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto the covenant and the, and the mercy of which he swore unto the fathers. So if you, if you read that, the word, because all these Torah portions have a name, and the name usually comes from the first verse of that Torah portion. This name is Zikav, Ikev, Yaakov, and it's translated as... In, in this particular verse in English, as if, the word if. And that seems like a strange choice for the title of a Torah portion, if, because that's not really what it means. It's The idea is, wherefore it shall come to pass, that if you hear, and remember we talked about the difference between hearing and listening, if you hear it and internalize it, if you do these things, if you hear it, if you hear these judgments and you keep, and remember that's the word Shema, it means to protect and guard, uh, and do them, then the Lord shall keep you, protect and guard you. So it's, it, it, it's basically this is your reward. If you do these things, hi guys, make sure you get some dessert. 
if you do these things, then you will receive, you know, it will go on through these 900 chapters to tell you what you'll receive, blessings and good things, basically. Um, so that's how you get reward or result, and it's unfortunate that it's translated if in this particular verse in English, but uh, it means reward or result. And so you have to be able to not just listen, like we typically do on Sunday mornings, like most people on a Sunday morning will listen and then they discuss the Broncos game or whatever, but to hear, to really hear and internalize these things. And so the things that it says, uh, it says these judgments. Well, these judgments come from the last verses of last week's Torah portion, which we can find in uh, verses 7 and 9. Uh, I'm sorry, verses 9 through 11. And it says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keeps his covenants and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repayeth them that hate him to their face and destroy them. He will not be slack to them which hates him. He will repay them to his face. Therefore shalt, or I'm sorry, thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I have commanded you this day and do them. So that's the this with which this verse is referring. So those things, if we keep them and hear them and internalize them and do them, they result in a reward and a blessing and all of the things that we would expect. So I have a thing up here of this word, Jacob and Ekav, which is, you can sort of see the letters, they're the, the exact same letters with the Yud in front of it. So... That's how we get Yaakov, is out of this word, which is result or reward or, or whatever. So, um, like I say, there's four and a half, five hours worth of stuff in this Torah portion because it's pretty big. But there's a couple of things that are, I think, pretty important. And, and part of it is the way that the Hebrews look at this. And this word can mean heal. So sometimes they think, these things that they're going to be talking about are unimportant, like something that you could walk over. But the picture is, what's the opposite of the heel would be your head. It's the furthest away, right? So it's this concept of Jacob being heel, and Jacob changes to Israel which is the head, because Israel has the location of Rosh, the SR sound. So they look at it like Jacob uh, is the potential and Israel is the completion. So you're looking at the heel as things that might get ground into the ground or stepped on or things that are insignificant. So we kind of look at that um, restrainer end, our physical limits, it's our potential. And then you go to the head, Israel, and it's unrestrained. It's the new beginning, it's limitless. It's our, it's our results. So you've got the potential to the result. So this whole 
Torah portion is sort of set up that way to give you that picture. And, the, and it's talking about the people that were in the wilderness. And in some very real sense, you could picture that as the heel. And it, they wouldn't reach their potential until they got to the promised land with the Lord. So currently, they're in the desert. They're wandering the desert, and it's not awesome. But think about those people who are wandering the desert. Because remember, the place we are in Deuteronomy is Moses, and that's again what Deuteronomy means is recapping. He, Moses is, it is, I'm sorry, recapping all the laws, commandments, judgments, statutes, everything he's taught. He's, he's redoing all the Ten Commandments and adding what they mean according to the Lord for these people who have been born and raised in the desert. They don't know anything except the desert. That's all most of them have ever done. Because remember, all the old folks died in the desert. So this is the new generation. So pretty much every day of their lives, manna has fallen from heaven. They've lived in the desert where they get water from rocks or whatever the situation is. The Lord leads them uh, with fire by day or cloud by day, fire by night. He keeps them warm with the fire, keeps them cool with the clouds. It's, it's been an interesting existence for these guys, and that's all they know. So Moses is, is recounting all of the words of the Lord, everything that the Lord has said to him. And he has in turn said to the people, most of which are gone now, and he's repeating it to these new people because he's about to die. He's going to go up to Pisgah and that'll be that. And they will enter the promised land. So he's giving them, um, he's recapping everything that the Lord has said for them. And he's about to give them some warnings and instructions as they enter the promised land, which is why it, it's interesting um, for us. Because if, if we, according to Paul, are to look to these people, then what's happening to them is going to happen to us. And the mistakes they made should be our lessons, our examples, Paul says, so that we don't make the same mistakes. So think of Jacob as the seed and Israel as the fruit. So as Moses, and throughout much of this Torah portion, he continues to recap the things that have happened and the things that were in the desert and the golden calf and the 40 days on the mountain and 40 days again and then the third 40 days and he you know he's going through all of that stuff which is one reason this Torah portion is so long but he's he's telling these people these are the things that happened this was the result you have not re reached your potential you know and I think I know, I know for me and I'm guessing pretty much probably for all of us We've had all these great ideas and, you know, if we could just do this or if we did that or, you know, whatever, it would all work out great. And, and often we never do it or it doesn't work out or, you know, we've, we've got these great ideas, but we're never able to, and I shouldn't say never, but often not able to, to make them look like what we thought they would look like in our head. And this idea of Jacob and Israel about this Torah portion, heel and head, is like that. You know, we have the potential, but it's we have to convert the potential 
into an actual action and a reality. And that's what these people are faced with. They've been in the desert for 40 years. They have the potential to go into the promised land and be God's people. Are they going to do it? And we have the same potential. We could, we could follow after the Lord and be led into the promised land and we could be the people he knows we can be and wants us to be. But like the first group, they were scared by the giants in the land. They saw the land and it was beautiful and it was all that the Lord had said it would be, but they were frightened and they didn't think they could do it. They didn't, they didn't fulfill the potential that was there. They let, uh, you know, they let what their eyes saw determine what they did instead of trusting in the Lord. And again, that's, you know, we can read it like history, oh, that's what they did. But that's not what Paul's saying. He said, this is for us. If this is the last generation or my daughter or my daughter's daughters or whoever is going to be the last generation, that's what this is for. So they need to learn. And even if it's not this generation, we still need to learn it to share it with the next generation so that whichever generation it actually is knows this stuff because it's it's simple that the world is not going to allow this to what did the democrats say yesterday they don't they don't even want people of faith they're seeking after people who are what they say not religious or not church going or something i mean they're just jettisoning any possibility of which is weird because they must not trust their own pollers you know like 60% of the catholics vote democrat for reasons like I can't possibly explain, but we're in the desert and, you know, 80% of Jews vote Democrat and Jews hate Israel. They want to see it wiped off the face of the map just like the Muslims do. In fact, if this is a little off topic, but if you ever find a book called The Abandonment of the Jews, it is a great book written in the 50s and it chronicles uh, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, the president, yeah. Um, and during World War II, when the word started getting out about the concentration camps and the gas chambers and stuff, and we didn't believe it. We didn't believe it. Well, he refused to even acknowledge it until almost the end of the war. And at some point, you know, because we didn't do anything about it for years. We could have bombed the train tracks and put an end to it right there. You know, I mean, they would have found another way, but... We could have done something and we wouldn't. We, wouldn't, we didn't want to waste the bombs. So at, towards the end of the war, uh, Romania, which was apparently an Axis country, could see the war was lost. And they tried to contact the American government and said, we have, it's like 4,300 Jews we're supposed to be sending. We have them in trains right now. And we're supposed to be sending them to various concentration camps. <clears throat> We know the war is lost and we will send them to you if you pay for their food. 23 cents a person is what they wanted. And Roosevelt said no. Wouldn't do it. A Jewish life's not worth 23 cents. And the reason he came to that conclusion is because his advisors convinced him. Well, that's not the only reason. I mean, he, he believed it too. 
But his advisors it convinced him that if, if he said yes and took those people, what would we do with 4,300 Jews in this country? And the thing is, most of those advisors were Jewish. They were American Jews. But they did not want these Polish and Romanian and Eastern European Jews in their country because it would mess things up for them. So 23 cents, they wouldn't pay it, and those 4,300 Jews died. That's the way the world runs, and that's the way we run. You know, we think of America as some great shining light to the Jewish nation, and it's not. But anyway, the Democrats are now saying, we don't even need those people. We don't need religious people. We're just going to teach, preach, whatever it is, to the non which... I mean, for a variety of reasons, makes no sense. I can't imagine any religious person voting for a Democrat. But that being said, lots do. And from a strictly pragmatic standpoint, why would they say such a thing? But they have no interest in Christianity or Jesus or the truth of the Bible. And that fits into what Moses is about to tell these people. So if you remember Bidmar, the numbers, the last book means the desert, but it means speaking. So he's speaking to them into the desert. And that's pretty much what was going on. Remember last week, they were, had been parked in the desert for 40 years, had been parked at the mountain for, I think, 10 years. And he said, enough. You've been here long enough. Let's go. You've learned enough. You're not going to learn anymore. Let's go. And he and it said last week, and I can't remember what we got to and what we didn't, but it said that let's go and I will prove you. We'll see if you can, if you have the heart to do this, if you can do this. Because you've been at the mountain long enough. You don't need to be there any longer. So they set out to the promised land, came to the promised land. That's where Moses is giving them this last little pep talk, you know, that we're getting here. And one of the things I think about sometimes, and I, I don't know the logistics of it, and it's never explained in scripture, but there were six or seven or 800,000 men of uh, fighting age, between 20 and 60 or whatever it is. And those were the people that would come to the synagogue, the tabernacle, and then they would hear the word of the Lord and they would take it back. You know, their wives would be in the courtyard of the women and they'd have to explain it all to their wives on the way home and to the children and all that. I'm guessing that Moses isn't speaking to six or 700,000 people. I mean, I, I, can't, I don't know the logistics of it. I don't know if he's just speaking to the heads of the tribes and then they speak it to the men and the men speak it to the women and the women speak to the children. And I don't know how it works, but I do know what he said. I'm not 100% sure who he said it to, but he was saying it to the people. And somehow it got to the hearts of all the people. And everything Moses said was like this. He would say it in the temple well, you can't put 600,000 people in the temple. So I don't know how it worked. And I expect it works a lot like it does today. Someone will say something to somebody else and that somebody else then says something to their five-year-old Sunday school class or their people at the uh, retirement home or their friends or the lady at the market or whatever. And then that lady at the market says something to, I would imagine that's how it works, but I'm not, certain. So as we consider um, 
consider these things, you know, recognize that the people then had a choice. They didn't have to follow him. I mean, they had to move with the tribe because that's where the food and the water and that's where God's provisions were and their clothes didn't wear out. And interestingly enough, their feet never swole, swelled. That's one of the things in scripture. Their, their raiment never, never failed and their feet never swelled, which apparently is a big deal. Um, but they had a choice, just like we have a choice. And the previous generation, most of them chose not to follow after the things of the Lord. They chose to follow after the things that they saw. And the things that they saw did not reflect the truth of the Lord. And of course, they paid a price. They paid a price. They died in the desert. They spent 40 years there. So we know that he's going to bring us into the promised land. And this next generation is going to go into the promised land. But remember, when they came out of Egypt, they were slaves. They were in bondage. And as they came out of Egypt, they were given, it said, clothing and jewels and whatnot from the people. But they didn't have any weapons. And it doesn't actually explain this anywhere, but there's a... Uh, uh, Josephus wrote the uh, history of the Jewish people, the Jewish antiquities. And there's a quote from him, if I can find it. Uh, but it's not up there. I didn't, anyway, it, it goes something like, the, the next day, and this was the next day after the Lord had drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. The next day, Moses and the men searched the seaside and gathered up all the weapons of war which had been driven to the shore by the divine power of the Lord. So they came out of Egypt slaves. They had no weapons. They had money in their flocks. And now they had weapons. So they could go and do battle or whatever they're going to do with apparently the weaponry of Egypt, which I thought was, was interesting. Um, anyway, so he's going to lead us in the promise, and this is where I was going, he's going to lead us in the promised land, and just like before, we have to be ready to fight, because there are giants in the promised land, and there's stuff that's going to happen. And so are we going to believe him when he says, I'm going to cast these people out ahead of you? And are we going to go armed, ready to fight? Should we have to? Or are we going to turn tail and run like the previous generation did? So these people were apparently willing to go. They knew there were giants in the land, and they suspected there would be fights ahead, but it was worth it. And they, they seemed to understand that the Lord was with them because, of course, the Lord said he was with them. And they had seen the same things their parents had seen where the Lord went ahead and cast people out of their way. And to other people like Edom and Ammon and, and some other nations, he said, don't set even a sandal width in their territory they're not for you now. You know, they need to stay where they're going to stay. But these other people, the Kenites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites and all these people, I'm going to wipe out. And then you go through the list of people that he went ahead of and took care of, you know, Og and uh, the king of Bashan and, you know, and all these guys. It's all listed out there and you can see what he did. So these people saw that. If they weren't a part of it, they were at least saw it. So now they're poised on the border again. Moses is recapping everything that happened before. The spies came back and gave an evil report, and the people turned tail and run. Don't do that again, he says, and they, they, they didn't. Oh, here it is. It says, on the next day, Moses gathered together the weapons of Egypt, which were taken uh, to the shore by the current and winds, divine means. 
Josephus. You know, it's not scriptural or biblical in any way, but he's the recognized historian of antiquities for the Jews. So there's no reason to believe that it wasn't something like that because they did have weapons. And where would they get them? It'd be difficult to make out in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. So presumably that is uh, where he got them. Okay, so they left Egypt unarmed and ready to fight. Lord gave them weapons. Okay, so let's move ahead a little bit to Deuteronomy 7, verses 18 and 19. And in relation to this idea, it says, Thou shalt not be afraid of them. They shall remember what the Lord thy God did unto the Pharaoh and unto Egypt. And remember, Egypt was a world-class power and they were slaves. There was no way they could fight these guys off. And the Lord took care of it for them. And the great temptations which thine eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and outstretched arm whereby the Lord thy God brought thee out, so shall the Lord God do unto all the people of whom thou art afraid. So promise of the Lord, he's going to deal with this. So don't be afraid of, you know, don't be afraid of stuff. We don't have anything to be afraid of. And so far, as far as I know, the Lord has not said, okay, I want you guys to go take out the DNC or San Francisco or whatever. And I don't expect that he will because this is, this is America and everything in scripture, it takes place in, in, in Israel, in the Middle East. So we have to be a little cautious not to overlay things that maybe shouldn't be overlaid, but the message is, is the same. There will be giants in our path. And if the Lord asks us to do something, there's no reason to expect that he wouldn't go ahead of us and make that possible. Um, <clears throat> he doesn't like us to be afraid of things that he has said not to be afraid of because it belittles him. If we're saying, oh no, those people are bigger and taller and stronger than us and we can't deal, then what we're really saying is our God can't deal. And our God is, is not amused by that sort of thought. So those people may pay a price for what they did, but we would pay a price for what we did. If we belittle our Lord in such a way to say he can't do that, he's not amused by it. Matthew 10, 28. Fear not them which kill the body, but they are not, not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And Proverbs 9.10, fear the, fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Well, we need to take those things to heart. And we should know what the Lord says. If we don't know what he says, we'll fear all kinds of things. We'll never have understanding. We need to know what he says in order to make correct judgments. Um, then he goes on to tell us to obey the commandments and judgments and instructions again, which is in this section of the Torah portion, he probably says that maybe 18 times. 20 times just in case you didn't get it the first dozen or so or in case you didn't get it the dozen in the Torah portion before that or the six in the Torah portion before that or the 800 times he said it before that and then he adds um, the instruction to burn the graven images of the gods with fire 
And these graven images were made of silver or gold, or typically overlaid with silver or gold anyway, because that's how the enemy works. You know, it's bright and shiny and we're attracted to it. And what would tend to happen is we would recognize that we're supposed to knock down their high places and their astroths and all of this, this, this stuff in Canaan. And then we'd see all the gold and silver stuff and pocket that because we want to take it home, you know, because that's worth something. And he's saying, don't do that. And it's not like he's not going to see, as he always sees. So he, he explains it by saying, if you take one of these images home, this image will become something that you look at and it will, it will start to have the effect that it was designed to have to draw you away from him. So he says, don't do it. Don't burn them and take the silver and gold. Just burn them, destroy them. And if you recall, uh, when they took Jericho, they had all these instructions to do. Take these, burn those, do this with that. You know, everything had a, a place and a purpose. And Achan pocketed some of the idol because they were made of silver and gold, took them home into his tent. Well, then the next battle Israel lost. And of course, uh, Joshua was pleading with the Lord how this happened. And he said, well, look to yourself. You know, there's somebody in your camp. So they did a little investigation, found out Achan took these things. Achan and his entire family were destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. They got rid of these idols. And then Israel went back into battle and won. I mean, it's that big a deal, right? We think, oh, it's, you know, it's just a little silver and gold, or I'm not going to follow that image. Or, but we do. And it doesn't matter. The Lord said, don't do it. So don't do it. It's pretty simple. Why would you take the silver and the gold images? It would, it would be telling the Lord that you don't trust me to support me. I mean, you're not going to, I have to take this silver and gold. Well, you don't have to. The Lord will support you. The Lord will provide for you in the way that he wants to provide for you. You don't need to do that. And all of these things, you know, pretty much irritate the Lord. If you remember in a Torah portion or two back, we were talking about the earthen vessels. And if the earthen vessel is in the tent when somebody dies, unless it's sealed, you know, sealed by the Spirit, then you have to go through this process. And the first process, you know, the first step of the process is you purge it before it can be cleansed and reused. Well, we're called earthen vessels, and the same is true with us. If we sin or somebody in our uh, camp sins, it all has to be purged first. We have to do that, purge the sin before it can be cleansed. And it's the same process with Achan or with us or, or any other thing. Um, so that's, that's what was happening there. Um, last week we read that their gods were a snare unto you. And that word mokish is, mokish is what's translated as snare. And remember Hebrew, every letter has a number. So there's a word called uh, maveth, which means death, has the same number. So in Hebrew terminology, mokish and maveth are equivalent. So the snare or the image or the noose is the equivalent of death, spiritual death. And that's, that's the way it works. Last week, Ned wrote, read the Shema to us. It's uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And I want to read it again. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and all thy soul and all thy might. And these words which I commanded you this day shall be in thy heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto your children and shall talk of them when you sittest in your house and when you walkest on the way and when you lie down and rise up. And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them upon the posts of your house and on thy gates, which is why I have a mezuzah and why most Jews have a mezuzah. It has that verse on it because we're commanded to remember that verse. Um, it's interesting if you were to, and you'll never get this in English or even if you go to the strongest translation of the Hebrew or anything, you actually have to see this in a Hebrew scroll. But when it says, Hero, that's the word Shema here, you know, internalize and understand. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. That one, word one is Ichad, and it has a Dalit. So in the Shema, uh, there's an ayin, the A. In scroll, that letter is enlarged. And there are only maybe not even a dozen in large letters in the entire 305,436 letters of the Tanakh. So it's a big deal. The first one, remember, was the bet, the B, as we started the scripture, because the B is the house, the house of God. That's the whole point of this book. There's another one in um, Esther, Hadassah. There's three letters in there, and that's if 1940. It's really an interesting one. And then there's these two, and I don't know if there are any other ones. But anyway, you take these two in large letters. It's in the verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, is one Lord. And in Hebrew, it's the, the one is at the end. So it's sort of bookended by these two enlarged letters. Well, the ayin and the dalit that are enlarged are the word for witness. So the Jews, I think, correctly view this as the passage that is the witness of God. That's why they speak it every morning when they wake up, every night when they go to bed, and several times in between, that's why it's on their doorpost. This is the verse that they live by. Our Lord is one. Hear this, Israel, our Lord is one. And it's interesting that it, the way it's written in Hebrew, that word witness is present in the, in the verse. Okay, so Deuteronomy 8.1, moving to the next chapter, it would say, This day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers. And then skipping down to verses 5 through 11, it says, Thou shalt also consider in thy heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. Therefore, thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways and fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks and waters and of fountains and of depths that spring out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness and thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord God for the good land which he has given thee. But beware that thou not forget the Lord thy God and keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I commanded you this day. 
And that's what we talked about again last week, this idea of becoming stale. And he's talking about this again. The Lord is giving you this place that you have to work for it. You know, that you have to farm. But you can farm in this place and it will produce 30 or 60 or 100 times the food that somebody farming in Egypt or Saudi Arabia will produce. It's said, there's a writer back in the 1700s that said an Arab would taste bread maybe once a month. Because it was, because you have, you know, to get bread, you have to have stuff that grows. You have to have wheat and flour and all that. You can't grow anything where they live. The land does not produce. But as soon as you get into the promised land, it produces wildly. No Jew would ever even consider not having all the bread he wanted to eat every day. Because the grain, you would plant some grain and you get 30, 60, 100 times as much as you put in. It's not that you didn't have to plant it, but it would thrive. And there's an idea that the rabbis talking about the dust of your feet and the dust of the people in the, in the promised land, that the, that the dust does what you do. If you keep the commandments and promises and instructions and judgments of the Lord, the land will produce. If you don't, it won't. And you see that by going outside of Israel. You see it by going to Edom and Ammon and all of these other places. It's the same land, you would think, but they can't get it to produce anything. They have to eat lamb every day because that's the only thing that will grow. It's, they, they have to struggle for water. They can grow almost nothing. The land just produces nothing. And we saw that in, in modern history, when in 48 Israel took over Israel, and then they gave the Palestinians, the Arabs, the Gaza Strip, it was heavily producing areas on earth. They were producing more oranges than Florida, more, more tulips than Denmark. And as soon as the Arabs moved into it, you can't grow a thing on it, nothing. And you can say it's the incompetence of the Arabs, and you wouldn't be 100% wrong, but you would think the land would continue to grow stuff. It doesn't do anything. And they can't make it do anything. So there's something to this. So, again, going back to Paul, and he's saying, look at these people and learn. And I look at America, you know, look at these nice new chairs, our new appliances, our big garden. I mean, I work for it, but I don't struggle for it. Because I work, it produces. It's just like this picture in the promised land. And we tend to think, I did this. You know, I worked so hard, I got this. I made this much money. I did whatever. Well, you didn't. I mean, you did. I don't want to say that you didn't. You work for it, but you get 30, 60, 100 times what somebody else might get because the Lord is blessing you. And it doesn't mean you can just lay in bed and have you know McDonald's hamburgers drop from the ceiling. But if you're willing to work and if you're willing to follow the instructions and seek after the commandments of the Lord and do the things he would ask you to do to be the kind of person he wants you to be, the land will produce for you. And I look at America and that's, 
the story of America. I mean, we, this land is incredible in a, in a million different ways. And certainly it produces more and does more and it's one of the, well, it probably is the richest nation on earth. It's the most powerful military on earth. It, until a few years ago, is probably the freest country on earth. It has, it's, it's, it doesn't even make sense outside of this concept of the Lord will bless the land if, if, if you do what he asks you to do. And for so many years, this was more or less a Christian nation. And he blessed the people that were in it. And what Moses is saying, let's see if we can get to it. Um, Moses, or Moses, Deuteronomy 8.14. This is what Moses is telling the people. Land, you've been there a while, and then thy heart will be lifted up, and thou will forget thy Lord, which brought us forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And down in 18 and 19, it says, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that has given thee power to get wealth, and he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto the fathers, as it is this day. It shall be if thou wilt do all, if thou do all, forget the Lord, if thou all forget the Lord God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I will testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. So this, this section of scripture, of this Torah portion, I can say it's quite long and there's quite a lot in it. But to me, the picture is, this is America. These people came here ostensibly to share the Lord God with whoever lived there. And they were basically, and I mean 99% Christians of one stripe or another, and they followed after the Lord and most spoke Hebrew. Remember it was a discussion back with William Bradford and the boys if the national language should be Hebrew or English. And unfortunate, it should have been Hebrew. And William Bradford wrote his book. I remember the, what was it? History of the plantation, Plymouth Plantation or something. First 20 pages in Hebrew in his own hand. This was a nation founded on the truths of God. And I mean, not just the denominational truths of God, the real truths of God. And God blessed this place. And he did for 200 years. And as we start, as you know, as they say, becoming stale, or as we forget the Lord, and I'm listening to the news saying, I don't even want Christians in my party. I mean, how do you get to that point? How can Senator Feinstein say you should be disqualified from politics because the dogma of your Christian belief lives loudly within you? I would say amen and hallelujah. You know, and what her, her time at the Sacred Heart School apparently didn't, didn't sink in so well. But I mean, what's wrong with this country? We have forgotten the Lord. And we look at people like that and we think, oh my gosh, this, this country is doomed. Well, this country is doomed but not because of them. It's doomed because we have forgotten the Lord. We have taken for granted the things that he's done. We have said, oh, look what I did. I made enough money to buy these new couches. It was me that did that. Well, <laughs> I know it wasn't me because I don't, you know, I just answer the phone and they say, can you do this? And I said, yeah, I can do that. And I called Dan and find out how to do it. And we do it. You know, I mean, 
I know it's, in my heart, I know it's not me. And in my heart, for the last 22 years, and I've never done any advertising or anything, I get up in the morning and wonder, you know, how I'm going to put food on the table and the phone rings and the Lord sends money my way and okay. So it's become a habit, which is nice. But so many people have taken that for granted. And I see so many people at church that have forgotten the Lord. Oh, yeah, they go to church. They know his name. He's a great guy. You know, blah, 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 blah. But they've forgotten all this. They don't, they don't remember wandering in the wilderness. They don't remember these things of the Lord. And they see the Lord in the image they want to see him in. And they think, you know, my, my Catholic pals can... Oh, yeah, we're saved. We know the Lord. Oh, yeah, sure. Abortion. Yeah, no sweat. Or homosexual. Yeah, great. Whatever. You know, love is love is what they say. Love is love. You know, doesn't matter. Well, that's fine. And I mean, I don't care personally if, you know, I mean, it's disgusting if you ask me, but that's just me. But it doesn't have any effect on me. But I always say, well, that's between you and the Lord. And they look at me like I've just slapped them in the face. Well, I don't care what you do. I have enough trouble keeping myself on the straight and narrow. So all of, all of these in today, it's like most of Christianity seems to just pick and choose the things that they want. They go through all the, well, they don't even do that anymore. They don't even go through the commandments anymore and say, oh, that's good, that's not. It's whatever they think is good. Whatever the world, if I was God, this, I don't care what you would do if you were God. What would God do? What did God say? What are his instructions? Well, I don't know. Well, maybe you should find out. Because it's keeping those instructions that will endear you to the Lord. If you don't know what he said, then everything you think of as being right is right because you think it is right. So what? That means nothing in, in, in the Lord's eyes. Okay. Matthew 23, 23. It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay with tithe and mint and anise and cumin, but have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done and not left the other undone. You know, we, we, we know we're supposed to tithe and there's always a big argument about how much. And even if you look at the... Um, you know, the politics and all of these people, Christians tithe something like eight times more than liberals do. Okay, big deal. They still don't tithe much. But <laughs> and liberals typically only tithe to politics, to political parties. They don't typically tithe to, you know, there's a big earthquake and thousands of houses are down and people are homeless and who sends money? Christians. Who's, who are the people over there? Like Samaritan's Purse and the Red Cross, Christian organizations. That's just the way it is. And that's good. It should be that way. We should tithe our cumin and anise and whatever he said, all of those things. We should take a portion of our money and we should give it to the, the uses of... And it doesn't even have to be necessarily a Christian organization. But I think if, if you give it in a Christian heart, there's a disaster. People need you. And you're, people are going to go and represent, hopefully represent the Jesus of the Bible to these people. And some will be saved. And there's the Jewish understanding 
which is a little narcissistic, is that all of these things that happen, earthquakes and fires and tornadoes and hurricanes, you know, I have another one in Florida. All of these things, these cataclysmic events that happen on Earth are designed for only one purpose, to get the attention of the Jews, to show them that God is still in charge. And if it gets our attention and draws us closer, that's fine. But they see it, and I don't know that this is true, but I'm just throwing it out there. They see it as all of these things God does to get them to wake up. Well, I would suggest it's, it's to get all of us to wake up. But anyway, that's the kind of tithing and, you know, the, the mechanical things that we can do. You can help out at church. You can give money. You can, you know, you can, you can do any of these things. That's excellent. And you should do it. And that's what he says. And don't leave these things undone. But the weightier matters are law, justice, mercy, and faith. Don't leave those undone. Do those. And we get so wrapped up in, well, I paid my tithes. I should be good to go. Oh, look at the chair I've given so much money. You know what? You should do that. And the Bible tells you that a servant does not get rewarded for doing what he's supposed to do. You're supposed to do that. We're supposed to do that. Big deal. We shouldn't have to point that out to the Lord. The Lord should already know we do that. He's asking you to show judgment and mercy and faith. And that is a little more ambiguous. To do that, you have to know what the Lord said. You have to know his commandments and judgments and statutes. Okay, so go back to the first slide. And I have no idea what time it is because your phone doesn't have a time on. Okay, awesome. The new moon. That's time. According to scripture, one of those judgments and statutes and commandments and instructions of the Lord is you have an offering. There, it's a big deal when you have a new moon because it resets the month and it starts. I'm not, I'm not even sure why all these things are as important as they are. I'm learning, but this is a big deal. And this used to be, in, in Hebrew days, considered a mini-feast. This is almost on the scale of Tabernacles and Passover and, and, and Pentecost. Every month, it's, it's a feast. You recognize the Lord. And they have burnt offerings, and there's all this protocol that they do. Every day, there's what they call a Talmud. It's a daily offering. And in those days, they would go to the Tabernacle, and they would... or whatever's nearby, everybody couldn't make it to the tabernacle. And there would be a burnt offering, there would be a, a, a grain offering, there was an offering that was left, and there were prayers that were given. And then there's all the, the, big, the big three feasts, you know, there's seven, nine, 10 days, three days, and 21 days, so that's what, 30, 34 days of feasts. There's the monthly new moon feast, there's the daily offerings. There's a whole number of things that the Bible outlines that you're supposed to do. In addition to, you know, don't eat pork, don't eat bottom-dwelling fish, don't eat, you know, this other stuff. Eat kosher, you know, all of the don't kill, don't covet your neighbor, you know, all of the stuff. There's all these lists of things that we should consider and we should do. We don't do them. And yet... You ask anyone in church if they keep the commandments, in any church, I don't care what church it is, 
And they would probably answer, oh, sure, absolutely. You know, I haven't killed anybody all week. I'm good. Those are the mechanical parts. I'm glad you haven't killed anybody this week. I'm glad you're not coveting your neighbor's whatever it is. You know, donkey, horse, cow, motorcycle, whatever. Awesome. Keep the mechanical things. Those are fairly simple and straightforward. Is your heart for the Lord? Do you, do you show mercy and faith and justice to the outside? This week, one of my Jewish deals that I look at all the time has been on about uh, there are so many people in this country whose heart is grieving by the things that are going on. Yeah, amen and hallelujah. And he actually brought it up. And he, he does a daily devotional sort of thing. And, you know, it's... I read it because it's short. <laughs> and he said that, I think, on Monday. And every day this week, he's just been doing nothing but putting excerpts of responses people gave to it. And he said, this has touched a nerve like nothing he's ever said in 35 years of ministry. That there are so many people out there whose heart is just grieved by the things that are going on. And so many of these people, their response is, we need to kill all those people. We need to treat them like the Canaanites and get them out, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm reading this section of scripture this week that's talking about, I need to do all these mechanical things that I don't do, I'm terrible at, and I need to show justice and mercy and faith. Well, he hasn't called me to go into the DNC and wipe everybody out. And I'm betting he won't because the only time he ever did that was when the Canaanites were vomited out, which is the word, of Canaan. And it was little by little. And the reason that happened was because they had reached their, their level of inequity. And the Lord had given them 400 years to get it straight. And they couldn't do it. So he vomited them out of the land little by little so that the beasts wouldn't take over. If he had knocked all the Canaanites out of all of the land, it would have taken the Israelites years to cover the whole land and build cities and all that stuff. And the beasts would have taken over. And this is a whole nother sermon. You see this in Revelation and Ezekiel and a bunch of other places when it talks about the beast. So he says in this Torah portion, he booted them out, vomited them out, which is the same word for leprosy, by the way little by little so that the people could move in and take over. He had them there for hundreds of years so that they could build crops and fortified cities and all this stuff that he knew from the get-go they were building for the Israelites. But if they had turned over like they did in Nineveh and come to him, something different would have happened. Maybe they would have moved in with the Israelites. I don't know what would have happened, but it wasn't going to happen because he already knew that it wasn't going to happen. But he let them build this whole land and, and get it ready for the Jews. So the Jews moved in and as they moved in, and these people were much bigger and stronger and fortified cities and better weapons, but they couldn't beat them because the Lord went before them and moved them out and then the Jews would move in. So when I'm reading all this stuff today about the hearts of 
American Christians being grieved at what's going on. I get that. I'm grieved too. It's pathetic and sad. And I can't imagine how it would happen. But I just read how it would happen. After you're in the, the land where the, the land just produces, it produces wealth. You have water and food and it's easy to live here. You don't need the Lord anymore because life is too easy. And we pretend like we do. And we go to church, you know, as long as it's convenient and enjoy the donuts and stuff. But it's not like following the Lord. It's not like Moses was saying. And this is what he said to the people. When you go into this land, it's going to be unlike anything you've ever experienced. The land will produce for you. It says, and I hope you read this Torah portion, that you in Egypt, you had to water your crops on foot. You had to take a bucket to the river and bring it back and water. You don't have to do that in this land. The snow falls in the mountains and it turns to water and it runs down the streams and the streams water your crops. It'll water your crops while you're still at home. I mean, this is a great land. And you're going to be in this land and several generations get the Lord because life is too easy. And then the other shoe drops and he sort of warns that if you do forget the Lord, he won't forget you. So there may be another desert wandering in your midst. And as I'm contemplating this and looking at this country, it was straight so far from its foundations and so far from the Lord. But I know the Lord loves the people in this country. So what's his only option? Something like the desert wanderings again, because that was the point of the wanderings in the desert was to test the people, to prove them, to get them to know the truths of the Lord and to follow after him. And when they went into the land the second time, they did follow after him. It did work. And he loves us enough to do that. So if he loves us enough to do that, and you see the way the country is going, and you know how it ends up, it's not that big a jump to think that something is going to happen similar to the wanderings in the desert. Now remember, all the people had to wander in the desert, even the Levites. And the Levites had, had it, I was reading commentary, it said they were aloof from the people. This was in the time of the golden calf. They saw what was going on and said, nah, -uh, not for me. And they stepped back from the people and would not do that stuff. And so then the Lord appoints them to be the priests instead of the firstborn. And, you know, you know the story. But they did that because they were, they knew the truth and they stood back from what they saw was going on. But they were in the desert for 40 years because all the people went. They went with them. So the fact that you or I or somebody we know may or may not follow the commandments don't necessarily think that, oh, I'm following them. I'm good. Yeah, you're good, but you're going with the rest of the nation. If the nation is going into a wilderness wandering, you're going with them. There's not like a little camp over here where the people who followed the Lord get to stay in their hammocks and stuff. You're going as well. So how do you avoid that? Well, the only thing you can do is to act in a way that the rest of the nations look at you and see that this, and this was the title of last week's, is a nation of understanding and wisdom. It depends on 
each of us individually to save the corporate, right? We have to be willing to follow after the things of the Lord so that others will then see that that shows wisdom and understanding and that's what I want to do. And the easiest place to do that, I would think, is at church. I mean, it's a hard place because they don't want to hear this stuff, but it's an easy place because those people want to know the Lord. They don't want to wander in the desert. And if it's explained and lived in such a way, and you can go back to Malachi and Hosea and all these things we always talk about. I mean, it seems obvious to me, but anyway, that's, that's the purpose of this Torah portion. And that was the, and today, tonight is the first day. So tonight, if, well, probably, I don't, they probably don't do this anymore in Israel, but they always used to station a priest at the highest point in Jerusalem. And the moment he saw that little sliver of the moon come up, he would blow his shofar and, and there would be things that would happen. And that was the start of the month. And then everything would kick off and the month long would go that way. But everything in their life was built upon the things of the Lord. And from where we sit, we look back at that and tend to think, oh, that's because they were, they had nothing else. You know, they're just dumb Bedouins, right? They just live in the desert somewhere. That's absolutely not true. They had everything going on. But their life was focused on the Lord on purpose because that's the way the Lord drew it out. Every month, every day, every feast, every celebration. I counted them up once and I think it was 136 days a year. The average Jew would be focused on doing something for the Lord because that was a feast day or a holy day or a holiday or something. They would have to think about those things. We don't, you know, maybe the occasional Sunday. And of course, Christmas, you know, heck, we get all the, all the Jesus we need on Christmas, right? We don't do that anymore. And our life is not focused. And you look around the world and you can see it's not focused on the Lord. And Moses is telling these people, look, this is going to happen. So be prepared. Don't let it happen. But he knew it would. And it, with us it is. So grab the things of the Lord. Don't expect not to have to go if there's a wilderness wandering. But do expect to be the light. Because there were the people in the desert that were the lights. Because they didn't hear it all from Moses all the time. Moses would say it and there would be people that they knew that did it. And those were the people they'd look to. And in the case of Reuben and Gad and some of these other guys, they didn't look to it. Remember, you had Dathan and Abiram and Koath. And these guys fought against that. And, of course, were destroyed, which is just as good a proof, I suppose, as, as showing wisdom and understanding and living that way. So anyway, that's what we have for you tonight.